This is Space Time, Series 19, Episode 77, for broadcast on November the 2nd, 2016. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, YouTube, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, discovery of recent volcanic eruptions on Venus, the origin of Rosetta's famous comet, and growing evidence that China's getting ready to fly its new Long March 5 heavy lift rocket. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new analysis of data from the European Space Agency's Venus Express mission has found evidence of volcanic activity in the planet's recent geological past. The findings add to a growing body of evidence that Earth's twin planet may still be geologically active. Venus is often called Earth's sister planet. They're almost the same size, Earth just a little bit bigger, and they were both born in roughly the same part of the solar system under similar conditions, giving them both a similar chemical makeup and composition. However, if Venus is Earth's sister planet, then it's somewhat of a twisted sister, with average surface temperatures of over 460 degrees Celsius, hotter than the planet Mercury, and hot enough to melt lead. Venus also has a crushing atmosphere, with almost 100 times higher barometric pressure on the planet's surface than Earth. That atmosphere is almost completely composed of carbon dioxide, over 96%, resulting in a runaway greenhouse effect which has quite literally superheated the planet and evaporated away all the planet's water. When it does rain on Venus, it rains sulfuric acid and metallic snow covers the mountain peaks. Venus is cloaked in a thick blanket of carbon dioxide and sulfur clouds. The surface of Venus shows evidence of extensive volcanism and sulphur levels in the atmosphere indicate fairly recent volcanic activity. In fact, about 80% of the Venusian surface is covered by smooth volcanic basaltic plains. There are two highland regions described as continents which make up the rest of the surface area. One lying in the planet's northern hemisphere, the other just south of the equator. The northern continent is called Ishtaterra, Ishtar being the Babylonian goddess of love. It's about the size of Australia. Maxwell Montes, the highest mountain on Venus, lies on Ishtaterra. Its peak is 11 kilometres above the Venusian average surface elevation. The southern continent is called Aphrodite Terra, after the Greek goddess of love. It's the larger of the two highland regions, roughly the size of South America, and is covered in a network of fractures and faults. Venus has few impact craters, indicating the planet's surface is relatively young, between an estimated 300 and 600 million years. That means there's been lots of resurfacing going on. Unlike the Earth, there's no evidence of tectonic plate activity on Venus to remove internal heat. However, Venus does have some very unusual and unique surface features, including flat-top volcanic features called ferra, which look a little bit like pancakes, and range in size from 20 to 50 kilometres wide and from 100 to 1,000 metres in height. There are also these weird radial star-like fracture systems called novae, 
features in both radial and concentric fractures resembling spider webs known as arachnoids, and coronae, circular rings of fractures sometimes surrounded by a depression. These strange features are all thought to be volcanic in origin and may explain how Venus gets rid of its internal heat. Now a new study of Venus Express observations of the planet's southern hemisphere by planetary scientists with the German Aerospace Center DLR have revealed some fascinating results. Venus Express studied Venus between 2006 and 2014, analysing the planet's atmosphere and surface features. The research team examined data from the probe's visible and infrared thermal imaging spectrometer. The thick permanent cloud cover of Venus has until now limited achievable resolution. It's a bit like looking at the view through fog. However, by running the existing data through a new numerical modelling technique, the team were able to push the limits of data resolution to better analyse the top and eastern flank of a massive Venusian volcano called Indan Mons, a giant mountain in the southern hemisphere with a base diameter of over 200 kilometres. These anomalies have provided scientists with an indication of geologically recent volcanism in the area. In fact, the scientists could clearly identify and map distinctive lava flows from both the top and eastern flank of the volcano. The new technique combined the Venus Express infrared data with much higher resolution radar images from NASA's Magellan mission which orbited Venus between 1990 and 1992. This was the first time that, combining data sets from two different missions, allowed scientists to perform high-resolution geologic mapping of a recently active volcanic structure on the surface of a planet other than Earth. A new study claims Rosetta's comet, 67P Sheremov-Gerasimenko, most likely originated in the Kuiper Belt. On August 6, 2014, after a 10-year, 6-billion-kilometre journey, the European Space Agency's Rosetta probe made history by becoming the first spacecraft to enter orbit around a comet. Then, on November 12 that year, Rosetta made history again, deploying the Philae lander, which became the first spacecraft to soft land on the surface of a comet. Although, as we later found out, that landing was a bit too soft, things didn't go quite to plan, with the lander bouncing across the surface several times before eventually ending up in a ditch. Rosetta's mission finally drew to an end with a suicidal death plunge under the surface of Comet 67P on September 30, 2016. Rosetta's mission stated the composition, chemical makeup and dynamics of the comet, in the process opening a new window on the conditions at play when Comet 67P and the rest of the solar system were formed 4.6 billion years ago. But one question which Rosetta couldn't answer was exactly where Comet 67P was born. Now using statistical analyses and scientific computation, astronomers at Western University have charted the path that most likely points to the very origins of Comet 67P, sheremov gerasimenko The findings provide vital new information in discovering what kind of material the comet's made from and just how long it's been present in our solar system. The results are based on computations of the comet's orbital path both now and also going back into the past. It's a process which was computationally difficult due to the chaosity of the orbit caused by 67P's numerous encounters with Jupiter. While exact details are obscure, the research team were able to establish a dynamical pathway from its current orbit back to the Kuiper Belt, a ring of frozen worlds, comets and icy debris circling the Sun out beyond the orbit of Neptune. The data confirms that Comet 67P is relatively new to the inner parts of our solar system, having only arrived here about 10,000 years ago. 
Prior to this time, the comet was most likely inactive in the Kuiper Belt's frozen storage far away from the Sun. That means much of the material on Comet 67P has remained fairly unaltered by the reprocessing that occurs as comets come close to the Sun, where heat and radiation can start to cook and change a comet's chemistry. Previous studies have shown that similar comets, known as Jupiter family comets, historically stay in the inner parts of our solar system for only about 12,000 years. Therefore, recognising Comet 67P Sheremov gerasimenko as a member of the Jupiter family does make sense. The majority of Jupiter family comets are thought to come from the Kuiper belt. The analysis shows that in transit, Comet 67P likely spent millions of years in the scattering disk, a distant portion of the Kuiper belt about 60 times further away from the Sun than the Earth and about twice as far from the Sun as Neptune. As the name suggests, celestial bodies in the scattering disk tend to be thrown towards the inner solar system. This distant origin for 67P sheremov gerasimenko implies that it would have been made from extremely primordial material, meaning minerals that existed in their current form since before the Earth was formed. There's growing evidence that China's getting ready to fly its new Long March 5 heavy lift rocket. The new heavyweight launcher is capable of lifting over 25 tonnes into low Earth orbit. That's more than twice the capacity of the European Space Agency's Ariane 5 ECA, and roughly the same as the United Launch Alliance's Delta IV Heavy. When it does fly, the new rocket will be launched from the new Wingchang spaceport located on an island in the South China Sea. The Long March 5 stands about 60.5 metres tall, with a 5 metre diameter core stage. The core stage is equipped with two YF-77 rocket engines powered by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellants. The upper stage uses two YF-75D engines also burning liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. The Long March 5 has an estimated launch mass of about 650 tonnes and can be fitted with a range of strap-on boosters to meet specific mission requirements. The Long March 5 is the third of a new series of rockets supplementing the long-standing Long March 2 and Long March 3 series launch vehicles. Beijing inaugurated the small lift Long March 4 a year ago and followed that in June with their new medium class launcher, the Long March 6. The new Long March 5 gives Beijing a long sought after heavy lift capability needed to send large payloads into orbit for, say, a future Chinese space station and for mining projects on the moon. The maiden flight, which could happen any day now, comes within weeks of China's successful Shenzhou 11 manned mission, which sent two Taikonauts on a 30-day mission to the orbiting Tiangong-2 space laboratory, which itself was only launched in September. Three Expedition 49 crew members have returned safely to Earth following a 115-day mission aboard the International Space Station. The successful landing was also the first atmospheric re-entry of the new Russian Federal Space Agency Soyuz MS-01 capsule, which had been on its maiden flight. The charred and blackened Soyuz touched down under partially cloudy skies and temperatures of just below zero on the frozen Kazakhstan steppe. The new MS-series Soyuz spacecraft uses new onboard computers, new communications and avionics systems, a new KERS NA approach and docking system, upgraded solar arrays, new propulsion and orbital manoeuvring systems for attitude control, and additional shielding to protect the crew from space debris and micrometeoroid impact. 
However, the Soyuz still has only very limited cargo capacity, meaning the only significant piece of equipment returned to Earth aboard the capsule was the RAM or Radiation Area Monitor. The Soyuz MS-01 had only docked to the orbiting outpost in July, making the mission significantly shorter than the six-month duration flights usually scheduled. Their 1,840-orbit mission was significant in that it included the first use of a DNA sequencer experiment in space. The crew also conducted two spacewalks, and they welcomed the Russian Progress cargo ship and the American SpaceX Dragon and Orbital Cygnus supply ships. The Soyuz MS-1 began its historic maiden atmospheric re-entry flight at 23.37 US Eastern Standard Time when it undertook a set of undocking and separation burns. The crew then conducted the 4 minute 37 second Soyuz deorbit burn at 23.06 Eastern, slowing the spacecraft down enough to cause it to begin falling back to Earth. 22 minutes later, as the Soyuz descended through an altitude of about 140 kilometres, its orbital and service modules were separated from the re-entry capsule. The new capsule's heat shield worked perfectly during the 2,500-degree fiery re-entry, and the giant orange and white parachute deployed right on time at an altitude of about 10 kilometres to slow the spacecraft down. Our first view of the Soyuz MS-01 spacecraft under uh, its large orange and white uh, main parachute. We can confirm. Just a moment ago, the heat shield being uh, deployed, that... Uh, enables uh, the base of the bottom of the Soyuz with its altimeter and soft landing engines to be exposed. The altimeter uh, providing uh, altitude and rate of descent information to the onboard computers for the firing of the soft landing engines just a second or two before touchdown. Search and rescue services, this is Irkuti 1, standing by. Search and recovery forces now have established communications with Anatoly Ivanishin aboard the Soyuz. Uh, the uh, thick overcast uh, that had been present around the landing site the last uh, couple of days has broken just enough in the early Sunday morning hours in Kazakhstan to provide uh, views of the Soyuz descending under its main parachute. Guys, get ready. Tighten it up. All of uh, the events, uh, the deorbit burn, all of the entry timelined events uh, have uh, clicked off in a perfect fashion cameras uh, that are on uh, all-terrain vehicles uh, at the landing site, picking up uh, intermittent views of the Soyuz as it darts uh, in and out of cloud cover. Search and rescue services at Code 1, how do you copy? Everything looking good. Search and recovery forces and all of the Russian MI-8 helicopters associated with the uh, Russian, U.S. and uh, Japanese support personnel are now uh, circling uh, the landing zone in sequential fashion. Uh, they're all in place, uh, standing by for touchdown. The crew is feeling fine, everything is fine on board. Is the altitude. The early morning Sunday sun glinting off uh, the large main chute that is uh, Hello, crew. carrying uh, the Soyuz MS-01, Anatoly Ivanishin, Kate Rubens, Takoya Onishi to a touchdown. Everything is in excellent shape and everything is ready on the ground uh, for the uh, recovery of the crew and the extraction of the three crew members. The Soyuz MS-01 spacecraft drifting uh, to its landing site to the southeast of the uh, remote town of Jezkazgan. This landing uh, sandwiched in between uh, two launches, a frenetic pace of activity uh, being carried out for the International Space Station's staffing of the complex. 334, right? 
Search and Rescue Services, this is at quarter one. 1,300 is the altitude. Everything looking good. Uh, the crew reporting on board that they are feeling well. Are your seats primed? Yes, affirmative. They are primed. That reference uh, to the angle uh, of the seat positions for the three crew members in the uh, Soyuz spacecraft uh, for the uh, firing of the soft landing engines that will take place just a second or two uh, above the ground, uh, a final braking maneuver uh, to uh, ease uh, the jolt of the touchdown under the uh, main parachute. Altitude is 600. One of the uh, Russian Mi-8 helicopters, search and recovery helicopters, circling uh, nearby the Soyuz spacecraft to get an up-close and personal look. They will be landing uh, in rapid uh, succession uh, near uh, the uh, spacecraft once it touches down. Standing by for touchdown. Touchdown confirmed at 10.58 p.m. Central Time, 11.58 p.m. Eastern Time, 9.58 a.m. in Kazakhstan on Sunday morning. After a journey of 115 days and 48.6 million miles, the Expedition 49 crew is home, Anatoly Ivanishin, Kate Rubens, and Takoya Onishi. The uh, Russian Mi-8 helicopters, part of the Rosaviatsa Search and Recovery Forces, are making their way toward the spacecraft. They'll land uh, one by one. One of the first orders of business will be the erection of uh, an inflatable medical tent nearby the spacecraft. Once again, touchdown time, 10.58 p.m. Central Time, 11.58 p.m. Eastern Time. The three Expedition 50 crew members still on station will be joined later this month by three additional crew members slated to launch on November the 15th aboard the Soyuz MS-03 spacecraft from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan. A new issue of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine has hit the newsstands. Joining us now with the details of this month's issue is the magazine's editor-in-chief, Jonathan Nally. Yeah, now look, we've got some interesting stuff in the November issue of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, starting off with Pluto. And of course, uh, the, uh, the NASA mission New Horizons flew past Pluto, what, about a year and a half ago now, so just over a year ago. Quite amazing to think the time has gone that quickly. And the, the interesting thing about Pluto and the New Horizons mission is that, you know, until New Horizons got there, we really didn't have any really good pictures of Pluto, so no one really knew what to expect. It's safe to say that a lot of scientists probably weren't expecting much out of Pluto, because it's this little frozen icy world right out in the middle of nowhere on the edge of the solar system uh, where there's not a lot of sunlight, not a lot of heat, so you wouldn't expect to see much. But of course, it turned out to be an amazing place one of the most amazing planets, or dwarf planets, some people call it, in the solar system. And so we're running a series of articles in Australian Sky and Telescope about the different aspects of Pluto. And in this issue, we're talking about the geology of the place. And it's fair to say it really has surprised a lot of the scientists. So just for instance, there's that famous heart-shaped bright patch covering quite a lot of the dwarf planet, or the planet. I'm going to call it Planet Steward. You don't mind, do you? Oh, I'll grumble, grumble about it, but I'll put up with it. Yeah, yeah, because I, yeah, well, yeah, I'm older than you, I think, aren't I? Got a few years oh. on me, so I'll let you get yeah, away yeah. with it. Us old people, we like to call it the planet. Um, get off anyway, my lawn, you kids. <laughs> it's, got this, it's got this really bright um, bright patch, looks like a heart. Okay, so um, at first they thought, well, this is going to be a plateau. This is going to be some sort of upraised bit on the surface of the planet. It turns out it's not. It's actually a huge depression, of sort of a lower area, probably three or four kilometres deep and about a thousand k's wide. And it comes in two halves. It's sort of heart-shaped in two halves. One uh, half is sort of rougher terrain, and the other half is really smooth. Now, scientists think that the smooth half is 
probably the remains of a huge impact crater. And there are some tall icy mountains around the outside that sort of might be the, the last remaining evidence of that impact. Now, because planets are always being hit by meteoroids and the occasional small asteroid, and we're talking over thousands and millions of years here, you can often tell how old uh, a planetary surface is by how heavily cratered it is from all these impacts. Now, that heart region of Pluto has, the smooth half, has almost no craters. It's really, really smooth, as a smooth half sort of implies. Now, that means really that young. it would have been hit by things and it would have been cratered, but those craters have been eroded and erased away. So that means geological activity, right? Something's been going on in Pluto. That means Pluto is not a frozen, unchanging world, as many had assumed it to be. It means it must be still geologically active over geological time spans, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years, which is pretty amazing to think that a place way out on the, the frozen edge of the solar system is still got geology going on. It's really quite tremendous. And they've extrapolated that a step further. They think that could be signs of a liquid water ocean beneath the Plutonian, if that's the term, surface. It is amazing, isn't it? Whenever we look at an ice planet, we seem to find some evidence of not just frozen water, because you'd expect frozen water and ammonia and methane out there, but somehow below the surface, something is hot enough, be it tidal heating, be it radioactive decay, something is allowing some of these tiny worlds, which should have cooled down long, long ago, to retain enough heat to keep water there liquid. And it's not just Pluto. You can think of Titan, the, the moon of Saturn, Enceladus, of course. We also think orbiting Jupiter, not just Europa, which we discovered had a liquid water ocean years ago, but also Ganymede and Callisto and Ceres, the other dwarf planet we often talk about. We think some of the craters under Ceres' surface may also have liquid water reservoirs beneath them. It's amazing, isn't it? It really is incredible. All these things that um, we would have said years ago, uh, it's impossible. To understand the heat source, what's causing this? In some cases, it is tidal friction, but in other cases, there's just no easy explanation for it. That's the mystery. That's what makes astronomy so exciting. I think it's the aliens, uh, Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> the alien fact factories out there building the UFOs that are going to build the invasion fleet and come and get us. Oh, sorry, did I just say that out loud? Uh, you said sorry. that out loud. Sorry. Um, just, just, you'll delete that bit, won't you, before it goes to air? Yeah. The men in black are monitoring us now. Uh, very, very good. Anyway, let's move right along then. What's else in the magazine? Okay, also in Australian Sky and Telescope, we've got a really good article. I really enjoyed this. Uh, a night with a big telescope. Now, Stuart, what's the biggest telescope you've ever seen through? The one at the Sydney Observatory looking at Jupiter on the night of December 31st, 1999. Was this the uh, fake millennium? Yes, it was the fake millennium, the one everyone celebrated. Not everyone, Stuart. Not okay. everyone. You purists who waited for... Two purists? Do you realise people in 100 years from now are going to look back at, at some people who celebrated on 1999 and said, what idiots they were. What were they thinking? Goodness gracious me. Prince would roll over in his grave. What, what was he thinking? I mean, goodness me. I mean, I remember waking up that next morning thinking, I'm looking around thinking, oh yeah, everything's still here. What happened to Y2K? Well, so they got the year wrong on that as well, didn't they? They got that one wrong, uh, the Mayan calendar. I tell you, it's the aliens. They're, they're, they're ruining everything for us. So anyway, look, you, you're looking through a, a telescope at Sydney Observatory. And look, those telescopes at Sydney Observatory are pretty good. They've got some very nice gear there. And I think they're probably a 40 centimetre telescope or something. The biggest I've looked through is 60 centimetre, which is pretty big backyard scope and a fantastic view of the Orion Nebula and a few other things through it. The more aperture you get, the larger the telescope, the more light it can gather in so you can see fainter things. You're giving me aperture envy. Aperture envy. Oh, sorry to do that to you, Stuart, but uh, you're using a term that astronomers use there and, and you see all you can with that telescope and then you want to see fainter and fainter things. So you've got to get a bigger telescope and you know what it's like. Anyway, look, 
What you can do over in America is you can book time on what used to be the world's biggest telescope. This is the 100-inch or 2.5-metre-wide Hooker telescope at Mount Wilson Observatory. Oh, wow. Uh, this, was, this was the biggest telescope in the world between 1917 and 1949. And if you've got a bunch of friends and you want to split the cost, for a few thousand bucks, you can book half a night on this telescope, which gets you that time plus a guide to help you out how to use it and everything. And you can go along and look through a telescope that's got a mirror that's two and a half metres wide. I mean, that's just spectacular. And it's in very good nick. They've refurbished this telescope and uh, amazing, huge metal beast it is. It's not one of these sleek, new, modern things they have these days. This is, this is a real solid, enormous metal telescope. Uh, really specky. So this bunch of people who wrote this article for the magazine, yeah, they, they booked uh, half a night, about um, 2700 US dollars, I think it was, plus all your accommodation, that kind of thing. But if you split that amongst 10 of you, if you arrange to get along, um, it's really worthwhile doing to look through a telescope that big so yeah they went along and had a great old time uh, looking at things like the ring nebula and the saturn nebula and the planets uranus and neptune and all sorts of other things including objects that are usually hard to see because they're so faint but for a telescope this big yeah it's a bit of a breeze so yeah you can read all about that in the magazine and find out how you can do the same thing if you're ever in the states and you want to uh, look through what used to be the world's biggest telescope and there's plenty more in this month's issue of australian sky and telescope as well including a review of a special mount that enables you to take amazing all sky panorama photos with your camera automatically you just sort of set it up and it will just do all the work for you so that's pretty special and also similarly we've got a review of some software and we show you how to use this software called auto stack it which is where you can if you don't have one of these mounts you can just take all these different pictures and stack them all together and produce one specky picture and you know you get a better result by doing that with just taking one picture on its own so lots and lots of interesting stuff so uh, yeah that's what's in australian sky and telescope for november that's jonathan nally the editor of australian sky and telescope magazine. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, and from SpacetimewithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Space Time with Stuart Gary.